you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter seven verses one through seventeen. These verses record the establishment of the Davidic covenant, God's unconditional promise to David and his generations to come. While not called a covenant here, it is later in Second Samuel twenty three five. This promise is an important key to understanding God's irrevocable pledge of a king from the line of David to rule forever, verse 16. It has been estimated that over 40 individual biblical passages are directly related to these verses. Psalm 89, Psalm 110, 132. Thus, this text is a major highlight in the Old Testament. The ultimate fulfillment comes at Christ's second advent when he sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. Ezekiel 37, Zechariah 14, and Revelation 19. This is the fourth of five irrevocable, unconditional covenants made by God. The first three include the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9, 8. The Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 15, 12. And the Priestly Covenant, Numbers 3, 1, 18, 1, and 25, 10. The New Covenant, which actually provided redemption, was revealed later through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and accomplished by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll begin reading at 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when it, this is the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the kings said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with all of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I take you from, your, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in your own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men will afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will dis discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Amen. The New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Begin reading at verse 1 through 19. The hostilities Jesus predicted the disciples would later experience now began to chase his footsteps as well. In chapter 11, the opposition is implied. In chapter 12, it becomes clear. John the Baptist had been arrested and understandably began to question whether he had correctly identified the Messiah after all. After sending his disciples to interrogate Christ, he was told to consider Jesus' mighty deeds and then to make up his own mind, verses 1 through 6. But if John was doubting Jesus, some of the audience may have been starting to doubt John. So Jesus discussed the Baptist with the crowds. John too came in some unexpected, came, came too in some expected ways, but was nevertheless to be viewed as the forerunner, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy about the preparation for the Messiah's advent, verses 7 through 19. In fact, John was the greatest man to live under the Old Covenant, but he would not live long enough to see Christ's death and resurrection establish the New Covenant. So in that sense, even the most insignificant Christian was greater than he, verse 11. We'll begin reading at Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. 
the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who, he, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what I, shall I compare this generation? It is like children, children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Amen. Psalm 89 will be our text this morning, but before you turn there, please open your copy of God's holy and inerrant word to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28 and verse 16. At the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel, all of the disciples, minus Judas, who had hanged himself, gather on a mountain in Galilee per their master's instructions. And this is a, a post-resurrection sight of the Lord. And Matthew tells us that the eleven worshipped him, but some doubted. Right, so the eleven disciples are there on the mount that Jesus had instructed them to go to. They see him there, and they are worshipping him, but some of them are also doubting. What do you think was the nature of their doubt? They don't seem to have doubted that he was the Jesus whom they had just spent three years with. They, they seem to have recognized him, or else why did they go up and start worshiping him? They don't seem to have doubted that he had been put to death and raised again. Again, if they did, they wouldn't be worshiping him. So what exactly were they doubting at this point? I think the context gives us a little bit of a clue. This is the last of the post-resurrection appearances recounted by Matthew. And we know that our Lord uh, spent about 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended. And during those 40 days, what had changed in the world? 
if, if you're a first century Jew living in, in Palestine, during the days when Jesus had been crucified and risen again, between the resurrection and the ascension, what would have looked different in the world? Well, the Romans still occupied Israel. Herod was still in charge. Pontius Pilate was still in control. The Pharisees and Sadducees are still in control. No doubt the disciples felt their very lives were still in danger. From their perspective and from the perspective of everybody else, not much had changed. But Jesus had overcome death. But what impact would that have? Had his kingdom actually arrived? Consider how Jesus responds to their worshipful doubt in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples that he possessed all authority in heaven and all authority on earth. It all belonged to him. What had changed was that Jesus is now ruling and reigning. His kingdom had begun. And on that basis, Jesus told them to go and make disciples. So let me ask you this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning this morning? Is he advancing his kingdom and accomplishing all of his desires? And I would imagine if I asked everyone here this morning that question, everybody would say, absolutely. 100%. Well, let me ask you, if an unbelieving friend or a relative were to come to you and ask the very same question, and you responded to them, yes, I believe Jesus is ruling and reigning now, and then they asked a, a follow-up question to that and said, well, why do you think that? What evidence can you point me to that Jesus is ruling now? Well, we surely can't point them to our federal or state governments of this country or any other, right? We, we can't point to um, any great acts of society. What about the church? Well, there are some good churches throughout the world, but if we looked at the church as a whole, it's not the greatest picture. The church in the world today doesn't look terribly healthy, doesn't look like they're being overly successful with the Great Commission. In fact, there, there often seems to be this massive tension between the promises of God on one hand and apparent reality on the other. And every person in every generation has to wrestle with this tension, the, the promises of God and apparent reality. God made great and precious promises to Abraham, the man of faith. And then Abraham because he remained childless, thought the promises of God needed some help. Right, so he took his, his wife's handmaiden and produced offspring through her. John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant era, saw and proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And when his circumstances changed, and apparent reality didn't look so well because he's in a jail cell facing execution, he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, did I get it right? <laughs> Are you the one who is to come, 
or should I be looking for somebody else? Because I'm looking around the jail cell, and it doesn't look like you're the right one. He's wrestling with his tension between God's promises and apparent reality. Apparent reality isn't matching with his theology. Now, our text this morning, Psalm 89, and you can make your way there now, wrestles with this tension between God's promises and apparent reality. And you'll notice I keep saying apparent reality. There are no tensions between God's promises and reality, though there often feels like there is. Now, Psalm 89 brings us to the close of book three of the Psalter, and it's preceded by the darkest, lowest point of all the Psalms, Psalm 88, which we considered last month. Now, the great thing about hitting the low point is once you hit the low point, there's nowhere to go but up. And so Psalm 89 does go up from the despair and the darkness of Psalm 88, but not very far. It starts out pretty well, but it ends with the kingdom apparently in ruins. And Psalm 89 is in many ways a commentary on the Davidic covenant that Walt read for us a few moments ago from 2 Samuel 7. David was living comfortably in Jerusalem. God had given him victory from all of his enemies. He's living in a beautiful cedar house, and he sees the ark of God in a tent. And he says, I want to build a house for God. Why should I get to dwell in a palace when the ark of God lives in a tent? And so David shared his desires with Nathan the prophet, who first applauds him and says, do everything your heart desires. But that very night the Lord came to him, and in a vision he gave him a message for King David. And in that vision God made great and precious promises. In 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 9, he says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges of my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David had desired to build God a house, but it would be God who would build David a house. David's already got a house, right? That's why he wanted to build God one. He had a house of cedar. But God's not talking about a physical earthly palace. God is going to build David a dynastic kingdom, a kingdom that David's descendants would rule. He goes on in 2 Samuel seven twelve. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. An eternal dynastic kingdom was promised to David. And David would have victory over all of his enemies, and his descendants would rule forever. Now, of course, we know David's history. Within just a few years of making these promises, David has to flee Jerusalem because of his son Absalom. Not long after that, David had to deal with the rebellion of Sheba. Then he goes to war again with the Philistines. 
Just before his death, his son Adonijah declares himself king. So Nathan and Bathsheba work quickly to get Solomon installed instead. And David passes from the scene and Solomon has to deal with Adonijah and a few others. But eventually he is securely seated upon the throne. He's in charge. The Davidic covenant is being fulfilled. All is well. Solomon goes on to build the house that the Lord promised David his son would build. He builds a great temple for the ark of God. But when Solomon was old, he was led astray by his many wives. And the Lord promised to tear the kingdom from him and give it to his servant. Yet for David's sake, the Lord would tear it out of Solomon's son's hands instead of Solomon's own hands. God raised up several enemies against Solomon and Israel, and in time, Solomon too died. He was succeeded by his son, Rehoboam. And the Lord kept his promise to tear the kingdom away. He took ten tribes away from Rehoboam, and then the rest of history is essentially downhill from there. The ten northern tribes are eventually carted off to a foreign land. Then Jerusalem itself, the temple, God's house, is destroyed. And then the rest of the tribes are taken away in exile as well. Now the structure of the Psalter as a whole, in a sense, follows this pattern. Book one of the Psalter is primarily concerned with David. All but four psalms in book one are attributed in the superscript to David. And in the New Testament, we're told that Psalm two is Davidic. So virtually all the psalms in book one are from David. They're all focused on his life. And there's a certain progression in book one of the Psalter. In the first 17 psalms or so, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 kind of form an introduction to the book. So from Psalms 3 to Psalm 17, all we get is David in distress. There's really no picture of David reigning and being victorious between Psalm 3 and Psalm 17. After Psalms 18 and 19, the situation changes. You see David much more victorious. You see references to him directly as the king. So there's this progression from David being persecuted in the first half of book one to David ruling and reigning and being victorious in the second half. In book two, we see a transition not only in authorship, but also in the kingship from David to Solomon. Book two opens with a collection of psalms of Asaph, and then it moves to a collection of Davidic psalms, but it ends in Psalm 72 with a psalm that is attributed to Solomon, not David. It's attributed to Solomon, and yet the, the last words of Psalm 72 are the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Indicating that there's been a, a shift, there's been a change. Now, there's going to be other Davidic Psalms to come in books 3 and books 4 and book 5, but something has transpired. And so we have this picture of David in persecution in book 1, followed by victory, and then we see this, this shift and this change. Then we get Solomon at the end of book two. What we should be expecting in book three is a continuing on of this Davidic covenant. What we get in book three is destruction and devastation. Book three is filled with psalms where Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple lies in ruins. 
Certainly Psalm 88 was concerned with that destruction and desecration as the low point of the Psalter. And so that structure from David persecuted to David victorious to Solomon and the destruction, along with the Davidic covenant, provides the context of Psalm 89, which closes out the third book of the Psalter. And the question arises, what happened to the promises to David? God promised that David's descendants would rule. Not only that they would rule, but they, they would rule forever. But now God's house lies in ruins. God's city lies in ruins. God's king has been deposed and subjugated in a foreign land. And so the question is, has God's covenant failed? Has the Lord broken his word? And these are the questions that our psalm seeks to deal with this morning. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through the psalm as I normally would, but let me give you an outline before we work our way through the text. I've broken the psalm up into five large sections, and one of them I've broken up into four smaller sections. So there's kind of an introduction where we see that a house is established by covenant in verses 1 through 4. And then from verses 5 to 37, we see this glorious house of God, this glorious house that he has built for David. We see in verses 5 through 14, it's established by a sovereign creator. Its people are populated by a favored people in verses 15 to 18. It's ruled by a favored king, verses 19 to 28. And it's guaranteed a favored dynasty in verses 29 to 37. And then the third major section is the house of God in ruins. Verses 38 to 45, which leads way to bewildered questions and plaintive prayers in verses 46 to 51. And then it concludes with a benediction to the covenant-keeping God in verse 52. It's a long psalm. I trust that it won't be a terribly long message. So uh, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as we work our way through this text this morning. Our great Father, you are the only one who can make a promise. Man can, can seek to, to make promises, but he has no ability to ensure they come to fruition. But when you speak, you can make that happen. You spoke the world into existence, and you are directing every element to its ultimate end to bring yourself glory and for the good of your people. And yet, Father, we all struggle with the tension between that theology and our experience. And so as we, as we work our way through this text this morning with the psalmist, help us to, to understand your faithfulness, to understand that you do not change, you do not relent. Help us to trust you more through this text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin Psalm 89 with the superscript. It's a very short superscript. It's a maskil of Ethan the Ezraite. A maskil is probably a psalm of instruction or a wisdom psalm. We're not entirely sure what maskil means. Now, Ethan the Ezraite, there is a man named Ethan the Ezraite in the book of 1 Kings chapter 4. Uh, that lived during the days of Solomon. I don't think that's who actually wrote 
this psalm. I think it's a descendant of that Ethan, uh, because when we get to the destruction of the, the second portion of the psalm, that doesn't fit Solomon's day at all. Um, the, the first section of the psalm is kind of an introduction, uh, verses 1 through 4, where we see a house is established by covenant. And there's a stark contrast. If you were, if you were just reading straight through the psalms, and you come to the end of Psalm 88 that ends literally in darkness, uh, and then you, you pick up verse 1 of Psalm 89, there, there's a dramatic shift. Psalm 89 opens this way, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be, will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. That's quite the, the contrast to the darkness of Psalm 88. And this is a, a message that every generation needs to hear of God's faithfulness. And the psalmist has a specific manifestation of God's faithfulness in mind, as we see in verses 3 and 4. He says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And the psalmist's focus is the Davidic covenant, the promises to David. God made a covenant with David. Now, why, why would God make a covenant? Why would he just say what he's going to do? Why does he do it by way of covenant and by oath? Well, speaking of God's covenant with Abraham, the author to the Hebrews gives us a clue in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 17, we read, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so God has given David two unchangeable things, he has given him his promise and his covenant. And by two unchangeable things, and he cannot lie, this should give David more assurance. He can be doubly assured. And the two things that are noted in verses 4 are at the heart of that covenant. David's offspring will be established. He will have a dynasty. And David's offspring will continue to rule the kingdom. And his introductory section ends with Selah. Pause and consider the glorious and great and precious promises that God has made to David. That he will always have someone to rule on his throne forever, eternally. And this leads way in the next section to the psalmist waxing eloquent as he meditates on God's glorious house that he's promised to David. And first we see in verses 5 through 14 that this house is established by the sovereign of creation. In verse 5, he says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Heaven itself and those that dwell therein are called to praise God's wonders and his faithfulness. Why? Because nobody compares to the Lord God. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, 
Who is as mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. God demonstrated his power in ruling over the nations. You rule the raging sea with its waves and you still them, verse 9. Now the reference to the sea could have a double meaning here. It could be literally the fact that God rules over the waters of the seas. Uh, But second, the sea is sometimes used as a metaphor for just the chaos of the world. And in both senses, the Lord reigns over them. In verse 10, we see that you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your, your mighty arm. Now, just as the sea in verse 9 could possibly have a double meaning, Rahab in verse 10 may as well. Rahab is sometimes used in the Old Testament as a reference for Egypt, and certainly God had crushed Egypt in the past. But it's also possible that in conjunction with verse 9, Rahab and and the reference to the sea, that this is a polemic against neighboring nations. Several peoples of the ancient world around Israel had a belief that the world was created when there was this cosmic chaos and there was this mighty uh, sea creature that was destroyed and then the deity formed the earth out of the carcass of that creature. Um, And so there may be some kind of polemical element to this of saying, no, Yahweh rules over the nations. Yahweh rules over Rahab. But unlike in the pagan myths, Yahweh also created the creature. Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. See, God owns everything because he created everything. That's the first law of economics. God owns everything. Not out of some pre-existing material, but he, he created it out of nothing. And he created everything that was created. Verse 12, the north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Essentially, this almost is looking in every direction. He's looking high and low. Mount Tabor is just over 1,800 feet. It's a relatively small mountain. And Mount Hermon's just over 10, or just under 10,000 feet. But God is in charge of all of it, north, south, high, and low. And God's act of creation identifies him as the owner of everything and demonstrates his great power in verse 13. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. But God is not just powerful, he was also good. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The sovereign of creation has promised to build a house, an eternal dynastic kingdom, whose throne is founded upon righteousness and justice and steadfast love and faithfulness surround him. And this glorious house that's founded by this sovereign of creation is populated by a favored people, beginning of verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. Now the festal shout is probably a reference to shouting in worship a joyful cry and exclamation in worship. The worshipers of God are a happy, joyful bunch. They walk in the light of God's face. They exult in God's name all the day, and in God's righteousness, they are exalted. They are blessed indeed. 
The text goes on, verse 17, For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. The people of God's house are strong because of the glory of God. And the horn and the shield here are probably synonyms for the king. There's a special relationship between God and his anointed king. And we see this played out in the house that is ruled by a favored king, beginning in verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Now, the psalmist is not looking back to a recent promise, but something of old. And so it's another reason I don't think it's the Ethan of Solomon's day that, that wrote this psalm. And where verse 19 has godly one singular, it's probably better to translate that in the plural as some, some manuscripts have it. Uh, what's going to follow here are elements from the vision that's been given to both Samuel and to Nathan concerning David. Verses 20 through 21, he says, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. God had commissioned Samuel to go and to find David when he was just a shepherd boy and to anoint him as the king of Israel. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. God spoke those promises through the prophet Nathan. And God promised to give David success against all of his enemies. He says, My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. The reference to the sea and the rivers there is probably a reference to the sea to one side of Israel and the rivers to the other side. So his rule is going to extend from sea to river. It will be complete. And then we see in verses 26 and 27, David will have a special relationship with the Lord. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. There's this intimate relationship between God, who is God's son, or between David, who is God's son, who would be set up as the firstborn of all the kings of the earth. He would be preeminent over all the kings of the earth. And all of this was sure to come to pass, verse 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand for him, will stand firm for him. And so we can be doubly assured of the certainty of God's promise because God has sworn this by an oath. But it's not just David that's in view in the Davidic covenant. It's his posterity as well. God's glorious house is established by the sovereign of creation. It's populated with a favored people. It's ruled by a favored king. And it's guaranteed a favored posterity in verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever. And his throne as the days of the heavens. Now any thought that when God says forever, he only means until David's descendants mess it up, goes out as soon as he starts referencing as long as the heavens last. This is an eternal covenant. But what if David's descendants do transgress the covenant? What if they do go astray? 
Well, we see that in verses 30 to 32. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. So God promises if they do go astray, that he will punish them. He will deal with their sins. But, verse 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. No matter what David's offspring does, the covenant stands. It cannot fail. Sin will be dealt with, but the promises always remain. Otherwise, God would have to violate his oath and have to alter the word that he had sworn. And this he cannot do. The eternal nature of this covenant is again stressed in the final two verses, verses 36 and 37. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies, Selah. And so as long as the sun and the moon remain, so too does the covenant with David. And he ends this section with Selah. Pause and consider these things. What glorious promises God has made to David. He's going to build him a house. The one who rules over all of creation is going to make David the preeminent king over all the earth. He's going to have victory over all of his enemies. And when he dies, his offspring will sit upon his throne for all of eternity. Now thus far... This psalm could not be more different than Psalm 88. Uh, psalm 88 was, was rough. This is glorious. The first 37 verses of this psalm have been one continuous meditation on the glorious house that God promised to build for David. All seems well. The Davidic covenant is moving along until verse 38. And from verse 38 to verse 45, we see that despite God's promises... The house of God is in ruins. Verse 38 says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. The change from the first 37 verses to now has caused many commentators to say this is actually two completely different psalms that have been stuck together. They don't, they don't even go together. That's possible, but I don't think it's necessary. I think the first 37 verses set the stage for what is to follow. Despite all those great and precious promises that God had sworn to David by an oath, for the psalmist, and likely for those of his generation, the situation on the ground looked like God had abandoned them. It felt like God had broken his word. Instead of walking in the light of God's face, they felt as if he was full of wrath toward them, and their Davidic king. goes on in verse 39, You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. The favored ruler that was promised has now been deposed. His crown lay in the dirt, and the kingdom lay in ruins. 
Verse 40, you have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. The glorious, eternal, dynastic kingdom of David is now a laughingstock of the world. Verse 41, all who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. The firstborn has been replaced. His enemies have been raised above him. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. He's become ineffective against the enemy and powerless to stand before them. Verse 43, you have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. His glory has been tarnished. Verse 44, you have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth, verse 45. You have covered him with shame, Selah. Now, verse 45 would be particularly apt if this was penned in the days of Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, took the throne at the age of 18. And Jehoiachin reigned for three months and ten days before being carried off to Babylon. His slightly older brother, Zedekiah, was 21 years old when he took the throne. Zedekiah followed in his brother's footsteps, and 11 years later, he too was removed. That was the last king to sit on David's throne. So we have another Selah. Pause and consider. Do you see, do you see the tension now between all those glorious promises in the first 37 verses and now everything's in ruins. You've cast his crown to the dust. You've exalted his enemies. The sun and moon remain, but the Davidic king does not. So where then is God's covenant? This leads the psalmist to ask bewildered questions and offer plaintive prayers in verses 46 through 51. This is where we find the psalmist in this last section full of these questions. He's trying to wrestle with this tension. He says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Now, this is a wholly appropriate question for him to pose. Lord, you have promised, when will you deliver? He's trusting in the promises. Right? He's not asking this out of unbelief. But he's asking it out of desperation. Verse 47, he says, Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and nev never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Man's life is short, and then he dies. Selah. Pause and consider that. And then the psalmist returns to the promises made to David in verse 49. He says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? He's taking God's word back to God and saying, you promised, where is it? And all of those promises of the first 37 verses, he's looking for God to answer why they haven't been fulfilled. O oh Lord, you swore with an oath. And he says, remember, O oh Lord, how your servants are mocked. 
and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which the, they mock the footsteps of your anointed. The psalmist's final prayer is, Remember, O Lord. Remember your promises and remember me. Now I can only imagine at this point that the enemies of the nations were actually using these promises as taunts against the nation of Israel. You know, your word says, David's always going to have somebody on the throne. and We've got him locked up in prison. What do you think of that? I mean, you can imagine how the, the nations would be mocking Israel at this point. Now, the psalm ends, as do all the final psalms of each book of the Psalter, with a benediction. See this in verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Thus ends book three. Now, did you notice how Ezra and the, Ethan the Ezraite resolved the tension between God's great promises and apparent reality? It's subtle, but important. How does he reconcile the Davidic promises, the, the double promise, that God's promise with an oath so that people can be doubly assured with the fact that everything is in ruins? How does he resolve that tension? He doesn't. He simply blessed the Lord. Ultimately, he didn't let present reality, as he understood it, dissuade or discourage him from praising, trusting, and blessing God. And there's an important lesson there for us today. Though it sometimes looks like God has abandoned us individually or corporately, we must continue to trust his word. Now we stand in a more privileged position than the psalmist as regards the Davidic covenant. We know that God was faithful to that covenant. Turn with me back to the Gospel of Matthew, this time to the opening chapter. When the New Testament opens in the Gospel of Matthew, we have a, a lengthy genealogy provided by Matthew. And we find David in verse 6. David to whom God had made all these great and precious promises concerning him and his descendants. Picking up in verse 6, And Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called Christ. Now, verse 17 tells us that it's 14 generations from David to the exile and 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Now, it's a long list of names, but I wanted to read it because you do need to see it took a long time. 28 generations are how long it took for God to fulfill his promises, but they were fulfilled. And note how the angel addresses Joseph down in verse 20. When he instructs him to take Mary as his wife, he says, Joseph, son of David. Right there, as the angel is telling him to take Mary as his wife, he is connecting Joseph all the way back to the Davidic covenant, all the way back to his father 28 generations ago, David. And similarly, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to tell her she will be With child, he too connects the child to David in the Davidic covenant. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke 1, verses 30 to 33, we read, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Just like Psalm 89 said that, the king would, be called, would call God his father. He would be the firstborn. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now for 26 of the 28 generations, from David to Jesus, there was little to no evidence that God would fulfill his promises. I mean, you had a little bit of hope during David's day and Solomon's day, but once you hit Rehoboam, it's, it's downhill. you got to wonder, how is this going to happen? Right? How is this, this covenant going to be fulfilled? How are these promises going to be answered? But in the fullness of time, God did answer them because he is faithful. And Jesus fulfilled every element of the Davidic covenant. He was the firstborn son of God. And he will reign on David's throne because death cannot hold him. And Jesus demonstrated his, his rule, his authority over the seas when he walked upon them and stilled the waves and the wind. That brings us back to the question I posed earlier. If Jesus is reigning over the house of Jacob now, and there will be no end to his kingdom, what should we point to? people to when they question the reality of that reign. When we say, yes, Jesus is on the throne. He's on the throne of David, the the one that was promised to David thousands of years ago. He's ruling and reigning now. And when, when people say, well, what evidence do you have? Where can you point me to prove to me that that is true? Well, we point them and we point ourselves when we doubt it to the sure word of God. Ultimately, that has to be our authority for everything. We can never look out into the world to look for confirmation of what God has said. If we don't believe in his word, we're not going to believe it in the world either. If we think back to the parable of the the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus is, is asking Abraham, send somebody back to my brothers. If somebody comes back from the dead, they'll believe him. And he's told, you know, if they have Moses and the prophets, they don't believe that. They're not going to believe if somebody comes back from the dead. 
Well, the same is true for us. If we won't take God's word at face value, if we won't trust God because he said it, it really doesn't matter what happens elsewhere. None of his promises can fail. We may not see their complete fulfillment in our own day, but they will be fulfilled. We don't look for evidence in the world of what God has sworn. We look believingly to his word. Now, part of the struggle with these doubts is the brevity of our own lives. And we see this, uh, Ethan touches upon this in verses 47 and 48. He says, remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, Selah? He says, look, my, my time is short. You've got to fulfill your promises now. And isn't that how we all want it? We, we all want God's full promises and all of his blessings today. We don't want to wait because we know we're going to die and we're not happy if, it, if it's fulfilled after that. We want it to be fulfilled now. Right? We are accustomed to instant gratification. We build homes in literally days, weeks, or maybe months. Right? God is taking all of human history to build a house. And then we doubt when it's not completed in our generation. It may seem that the work is stalled or abandoned at times, but make no mistake, he is building it. The Lord is faithful, he has promised, and he will not default. He has sworn with an oath in his word. We can be doubly assured. Moreover, he has sent his word into the world. His son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to identify with us, to pay the debt that we owed, and to secure all of the promises of the covenant for us. And he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us as a seal, as a guarantee of things to come. David's greater son has come. He sits upon the throne where he shall reign until all of his enemies are made his footstool. I came across a quote I think it's a course I'm taking, but I can't remember exactly who the theologian was. But there was a theologian who was asked, you know, how can you sum up all of your theology? How could you distill it down to a, one simple statement? And he says something to the effect of, I think the most profound truth I ever learned was Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the great and precious promises that you have given us. We ask that you would forgive us when we doubt and when we are discouraged and think that your promises won't come to pass. Father, you have given your Son as the ultimate testimony of your faithfulness. Grant us the assurance that comes with faith in him. Grant us the peace that comes with knowing that our sins have been dealt with, that we have been adopted into your family. And Father, though we would love to see your kingdom in its fullness in our generation, we trust that you will bring it to completion at its appointed time. For Father, you are faithful, you are righteous, you are steadfast, and you are true. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.